here on episode 100. <laughs> Henry Smythe, thank you very much for coming in this special day. Oh, thanks for having me, Jake. It's, uh, no, it's, it's an honor to be here. I appreciate your thinking of me. Yeah, it'll be a fun conversation yeah, here. Yeah, it should be. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. So I, I actually asked Billy on the bus ride home <laughs> yesterday from our squash match. I was like, I'm having your dad on to the podcast. Can you give me some, you know, some topics of conversation, <laughs> some stories <laughs> that might be good to, uh, to talk about? And I was thinking a little bit about your assembly the other day about roots hmm. and, uh, um, and just wanted to maybe start with your roots and your upbringing sure. and I guess your childhood. Sure. Okay. Um, and just start, start there. Yeah. Uh, so grew up in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, I'm the I'm the third of three kids. I have an older brother, Jordan, um, sister Elliot, so she's in the middle, um, and uh, they're only three and a half years between the three of us. Um, so four years in school, but Jordan's three and a half years older than I am. So mom and dad had three kids in pretty quick succession, um, and uh, you know, in a lot of ways, had a pretty idyllic childhood I think I mean we we my brother and sister and I still get along really well um my parents you know were were married until my dad died um he died early that that would be a sad thing in in my life and still a you know sense of loss there and I can you know, talk about that more but otherwise had a pretty I think idyllic childhood um my mom still lives in the house that I grew up in that um so we we moved um, when I was three or four years old from the house that I was born in, and, and mom and dad built a house that my uncle, my mom's brother, who was an architect, designed, and um, she still lives in it. So um, you know, a lot of ways. And so the the whole notion that I talked about the other day in assembly of of feeling a sense of roots is is real for me. I mean, I you know I go home to the house that I grew up in, and I still catch up with friends that I grew up with, and um, and that stuff kind of matters to me and I, I you know um Elizabeth is the same way her mom still lives in the house that she grew up in in North Carolina and you know we we think and hope that our boys feel that way about Baltimore at this point mm -hmm. um that this is you know they weren't born here but they were pretty young when we moved here five and two and a half um so they definitely feel like Baltimore's their home and that's a cool thing I think yeah, so, yeah, um, that's funny. I mean, I can say more about childhood, but that you know, that's the the family structure. Mom, dad, I'm the third of three kids um, in Charlotte, um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I'm happy to answer more. But yeah, that's a, that's a start. It's funny because uh, I've been thinking about. I mean, Philadelphia, outside Philadelphia, Berwyn is where I'm from, mm -hmm. is my home. I would say, but yeah. Baltimore over these last five years have become pretty comfortable here. And I was driving on 83 the other day. I'm like, I've, I know these roads, you yeah, know, I know, the, I know where the speed traps are. Yep. I know where everything is. And, uh, yeah, it's becoming kind of, kind of a home here. Definitely yeah. at Gilman school. It's funny you mentioned, I get the same feeling driving. So it's funny that you mentioned being in the car and, and getting that sense of familiarity I, when I'm driving around town sometimes I feel the same way it's like oh, I know this stuff really well and mm -hmm. you know, we've been here for working on 13 years and um, I also notice it with medical care so you know, we, I think pretty quickly you realize you're not from somewhere when either you or a child needs a doctor and you don't know where to go right mm -hmm. and um, and fortunately Gilman's been really I mean, the medical community here in, you know, in Baltimore and through Gilman is, is pretty phenomenal. So when we were going through our rounds of broken bones and stitches with the boys when they were little, um, it was nice to be able to know people in the hospitals or in the doctor's offices when we need to get stitched up or get bones fixed. And that helped to make it feel like a place that we, you know, that we could call home. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because uh, a little bit of a medical scare the other day at the squash courts with, with Billy getting yeah, hit right. in the head with yeah. a squash racket. Right. He came running up to me just shooting blood. Yeah, apparently like, oh he had God. to cup it in his hands. I, you know, I missed that part. I just saw the picture of the goggles afterwards. Yeah. Um, he, was this, he was more of a stitches guy, and Pittman was more of a broken bones um, guy. So Billy had multiple rounds of stitches when we lived over in, in Swanee House when we first moved here. Pittman broke both his arms at the same time when he was in pre-first. Oh my God! Um, yeah, he fell off one of the apparatuses on the, you know, out on the playground and and broke his fall with with both hands. Jeez. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh 
He got um, really good at hula hooping that that year in recess. Yeah, yeah. Something I've been thinking about a little bit um, recently is like all of the things that you learn in school. So I'm teaching mm-hmm. about you know great short stories right now, and we're reading poetry, and that's all awesome. And I love teaching English, but there there's certain things that you think about in adulthood that you don't learn in the classroom that sometimes I think about like I wish I learned how to to change a tire right or like when your child breaks both of his arms on the jungle gym yeah. when he's younger you know um, CP, CPR you learn it as an adult but mm-hmm. some of those things I was I was just thinking about um, when a pipe burst in, in my house and like I, I was helpless. I was like, oh, right. I need, you know, Gilman to help me out here. Right. But sometimes I wish I, I knew those those things. Yeah, and you, there's no way you can teach all that stuff in, in any period of time in, in grade school or, or anywhere you know, along the you know, sort of the, the education continuum, pre-K to 12 or even in college. But you know, probably what you hope is that um, what you are teaching – boys and girls, you know, boys at Gilman, um, is, is sort of how to equip themselves so that they can deal with that stuff, even if they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so when mm-hmm. your pipe bursts, um, you're not just totally helpless uh, right. and, and you can call somebody other than your mom, right. To, <laughs> yeah. to fix it or, yep. um, or, you know, when you, when you get a flat tire on the side of the road, um, you're not just standing there forever, but you have some sense of, of, awareness and and competence and confidence that you can okay get out of this situation um even if you don't know how to you know do exactly what is called for in that in mm-hmm. that moment um and that's what you know that's what you know I, I, I said confidence i think this is a sense of competence and confidence that you're hoping you can develop in people along the way um, i think the beauty of the world today is you could just go on to youtube right. for a lot yeah, of things that too, yeah and 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 learn how to do it in five minutes. Yeah, my mom used to do sort of community college kind of stuff every now and then. Like she she wanted to learn how to lay bricks so that she could build a patio outside the back door. Um, and rather than you know, pay somebody to do it or have somebody do it, um, she decided to take a bricklaying class at Central Piedmont Community College and figured it out that way. So that was probably the, the analog version of you know what YouTube can give you now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Uh, growing up, back to your roots yeah, a little yeah. bit, uh, you went to a prep school. Did you start out going to school up until, what, middle school or high school in North Carolina? Through high school, or through ninth grade, yeah. So, um, I, again, the third of three kids. So I, I kind of followed my brother and sister educa- in, on their education paths. Um, so we went to Charlotte Country Day School starting in kindergarten, which is a, a K-12 to co-ed day school in Charlotte. It was, it, at the time, the old, still the oldest um, got a big independent school down there. Um, and my parents, um, so sent my brother to country day and then my sister and I followed suit. Um, and, and yeah, we all went to boarding school too. Um, and that was a, that was not any part of my parents plan or, or our, even our background. I mean, my, my mom went to Lumberton high school in, in, you know, Southeastern North Carolina. My dad, actually my dad went to boarding school, um, it was a, it's a small all boys Episcopal school in, in the mountains of North Carolina called Christ School. It's an outdoor school. basketball place these days. The Plumlee brothers who went to Duke went to Christ School, and um, it's a neat little it's a neat little spot. But it's it's not you know a New England you know of of the New England boarding school tradition. And, and my dad had grown up about thirty minutes down the road, um, and he I'm still not sure how he ended up there, but he and his his two brothers went to Christ School. And while he was there, his family moved to Charlotte from um, a little town called Flat Rock where he grew up. So boarding school was not really the, the family tradition, but my brother apparently approached, approached my parents um, in ninth grade about getting a change of scene. And we, he'd been at Country Day. He was one of his 10th year there and I think felt like he just wanted something different. And then some of his friends were going to be leaving, either going to the public high school down the road or going to Woodbury or Episcopal or something like that, some sort of more Southern boarding schools. And, and so my parents encouraged him to look up North and, and New England. And he looked at a few um, boarding schools up there and, and ended up going to Andover. Um, and, uh, and so 
you know, we didn't have to, but my sister and I also ended up both doing the same thing. And they were there together. They overlapped for two years because they were just a year apart in school. And then my sister Elliot graduated from Andover in 85, and I started that fall. Um, mm-hmm. So I was there on my own, but it was also very much known as you know, the the little Smythe um, coming through. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. One thing I love about uh... – your message when you speak in front of the school is the say hey message and <laughs> yeah. i and i really yeah. like how you connect that to going to boarding school where you're in the north and yeah. most people i guess where you grew up said hi to each other yeah. and it was a little bit different when you went to andover very I guess, much, at first yeah very much so i mean I, I got a lot of grief from my friends at andover and i still do in some ways for saying hey to everybody it was just sort of what we did so i'd you know, pass somebody on the sidewalk on campus and I'd say, Hey, and, and I'd get sometimes some pretty funny looks. Um, like, you know, who is this guy? What is he doing? And, um, but it also sort of became a, almost a running joke with some of my buddies. And, uh, but I, you know, and so for me, and, and this is what I think you've heard me say this with the, in front of the, the students in the, our community is, is, you know, I guess for a long time, I just thought of it as something that you do. Um, because even back home when I was a kid and we'd be driving in the country, people would wave from their porches. You know, this is, so I'm, I guess I'm old enough that I, I can, you know, it, it sounds old fashioned, but, you know, you would, you would be driving along a country road in, in somewhere in North Carolina and, and, you know, people would be sitting on their front porches and they would wave at the car going by and we'd wave back. Um, so you just, you know, saying, Hey, it was something that, that we were used to doing. Um, but I, I think more, and this is the point I make, I guess, with the students, is that more deeply it, it's an acknowledgement of, of somebody else in your presence. And I think that's an important thing to um, to try to practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? for sure in a community, and I think especially today with right. so many phones and ear pods in. Yeah, disconnection. And, yeah, disconnection. Yeah. Just recognizing that we're a community and right. you know, that person's your English teacher, that right. person's in your class. Right. Just acknowledge that they're walking by you yeah. or in the same room as you are in. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's important. I hope I hope people take to it. Um, mm-hmm. but it takes time and it also takes some habit formation, I think. When you uh, address the class or the community mm-hmm. in general, where do you how do you come up with your ideas for what to, to say to people? Is it usually from personal experience, from what you're reading, a mixture of the two? I know that you talk about your travels a lot, which yeah. which yeah. have an impact on you. Yeah, so that's a great question. I it, it, some of the all of the above, I think. I mean, you know, I, I um, stuff I read, I, I pick up on. I, I'll often if I'm reading something and I, there's a line in a book or a line in a, in a David Brooks column, I know he's somebody we've talked about before. Um, I'll, I'll flag it and think up oh, there's a, there's a message in there. There's a, there's some remarks in that line. Um, and then try to build something around it. Um, so that I, I'll, often stuff that I'm reading podcasts more recently, just because that's, I've, I've discovered podcasts in the last year. And so I listen to those some and, and, I can pick up on things there as another source. Stories I hear, I, I referenced a sermon, mm-hmm. you know, on what's today, Friday. So on Wednesday when I, I spoke in assembly, um, I referenced a sermon. And, and Reverend Palmer, who was the, the interim pastor at, at uh, National Presbyterian, this was years ago when we were living in D.C. and we were attending that church a little bit. Um, his sermons were like part lecture, part scripture and I, I often was taking notes just because he was really interesting and and so that that whole idea that the David McCullough cut root cut flowers reference came mm-hmm. from a sermon so I, I'm just trying to listen to stuff and then you know when I hear something that resonates I'll I'll flag it yeah you know? but but your main core message is usually say hey yeah and say, yeah and show up and show love mm-hmm. and, and where'd you get that idea well the the say hey I, you know, I think we we've talked about it already I just think it's important to you know one it's nice to be in a friendly environment but two I think it's it's just it's that important acknowledgement of other people around you mm-hmm. um, and then showing up and showing love is another that's one that I've I've I think that's been more of an, an acquisition I guess um, more recently. And I, part of it's just watching Gilman at its best. Um, and I think I, I remember a time when I referred to it with the upper school boys. Um, 
and it was it was coming out of Mr. Kamenitz's funeral service, um, Dylan and Carson's father, who had been a Gilman alum also. Um, and that was a really, it was a sudden death, and it was it was tough on the community. I can't imagine how it was on, on those two guys and their family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember going to the service, and I I knew Mr. Kamenitz, but not well. And, you know, he, he was a really friendly, good guy and, and loved Gilman and all that. But I, you know, I wasn't moved emotionally necessarily by his passing other than feeling for his kids. And um, But what hit me was at the end of the service, I was I was – towards the back um, in the synagogue. And um, at the end of the service, when all of the people started filing out, I stood, I, I just stood where I was in, in the pew and, and it was right by the aisle and just sort of wave after wave of Gilman, current Gilman students. So a lot of Dylan and Carson's classmates, you know, walked by and I, and I stood there and thanked them for being there. And, and it was at that moment that I actually welled up that's when i was moved um emotionally and and i've I've seen that you know often in in more sad moments um but i've also seen it in joyful moments with with gilman people and and when they show up for each other and that was the thing they showed up and they showed love for their classmates mm-hmm. um and uh and i've experienced that when my dad died too and that was i think i've talked about that in in assemblies as well that um you know, that, that's, you know, in, in my own life, that's been the saddest thing I've had to deal with. My dad was 69 when he died, and, um, you know, prematurely, at least I think, and he had early onset Alzheimer's, so he, he was pretty young. Um, and it was a very sad time for my family, and in a, in a strange way, the day of my dad's memorial service, all of these people showed up. There were people from Andover and people, you know, that I'd known since I was four years old in Charlotte, and camp friends and college friends all showed up and uh it turned what was a you know a sad occasion into actually a really cool day for me mm-hmm. and i think my brother and sister felt the same way um so i just i've, I've real i guess i've learned over time the importance of of showing up for each other and and showing love for each other and and the the benefits and the that can come from that and, and the power that it has to make a difference in, in somebody's life. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think it's really important. And also it, as I've already said, it, you know, I think it's Gilman at, at our best and, and, and that can happen in silly lighthearted things like storm the pool or, you know, a, um, or, you know, another sporting event. Um, and it can happen in really powerful moments like a, like a funeral. And it can happen even, you know, the, again, when we're at our best celebrating each other, showing up, um, and in an assembly we had this fall with the three musicians. Mm-hmm. And um, if you remember, we had a cellist, um, a uh, um, French horn, and then trumpet. And at the end of it, you know, there was spontaneous standing ovation for that because the guys recognized talent and authenticity, and they appreciated that. Right. Um, those are really cool moments. Yeah, yeah. Something that I'll always remember is probably my favorite teacher ever was Mrs. Shepard. And I was in, I think I was in 11th grade English. Uh-huh. And she was she was pretty elderly. She was like 80 years old right, probably when she right. was teaching. She would come which in. Is, which means she was probably 50, right, at the time. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> um, she would come in just for the one class and that, right. that would be it. She'd teach and, and leave. But she was a great teacher because she would just tell stories uh-huh. and i you know i remember what we read a little bit but right. now I'm, i, I kind of forget some things yeah and i was someone who was interested in everything but i remember the stories and the things that she talked about just from life experience right. and one of the things she said to us one time was you know when there's something tragic that happens and somebody dies or you're you don't know what to say sometimes and you're with people Sometimes you don't really even need to say anything. Like as long as you're there with yeah. them, yeah. that's enough. And I think that that goes to your message of show up yeah. and show love. Like you don't always need the words. And it's hard to sometimes to know what to say um, in those kinds of situations. And and maybe you don't have to all the time. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Andre Jones was great with stories. Yeah, we had him on on the podcast yeah, not too long and, ago, and that that's how he taught. I mean, the boys were just mesmerized by his storytelling. Yeah, yeah. When you talk to anyone now, you're like, oh, that guy. I remember. Yep. I don't. I don't remember too much about the geography, but I remember the stories, yep. he, and and yep. you'll remember those forever. Yep. 
Um, so you go up to Andover, yep. and um, what was that experience like for you? I mean, leaving home, going to a boarding yeah. school in New England. What was that? What was that like? It was awesome, um, it, and it was a. Even at the time, I think I recognized it. Certainly more, you know, with with um, reflection, um, it was it was a really important experience for me. You know, leaving uh, leaving home, going to a different part of the world. Um, Andover was in, incredibly more diverse, you know, than Country Day was at the time. You know, all schools have, have gotten better at being more diverse, um, you know, now than they were whenever they started. But uh, but Andover was a really diverse place, and and so, you know, that was important for me, I think. And um, uh, you know, the the relationships I, I built with with my friends, you know, to live in a dorm with them and and be able to spend you know, after hours time hanging out with good friends was a, was a lot of fun. Um, I developed really good relationships with teachers and coaches. Um, and uh, a lot of that's what, you know, what drove me, you know, toward, pushed me towards education anyway. And, and that, that was true at Country Day as well. I mean, there's some teachers that I stayed in touch with after I left Country Day and, you know, I still keep in touch a little bit with my ninth grade basketball coach, who was my PE teacher in middle school, um, Kevin Daly, who's a a good influence on me, but so Andover, it was just, it was, I think the, for me, the, um, the newness and the difference was what was really good for me, um, mm -hmm. and important for me. Um, when, did, when did you first have a sense that education was kind of where you wanted to go in high school? Yeah. yeah so, yeah, um, I, I did not, I don't come from a family of educators. Um, so it was not, you know, what in the family business like it is for some people. Um, but, I knew when I graduated from high school, going into college, that that teaching was something I wanted at least to try, mm -hmm. um, hoping that I that I'd like it. And I remember, you know, I, yeah, I, I knew that because I remember having conversations with people about it, you know, even before college started. That you know, I said, "What do you want to do with your life?" Well, I think I want to be a teacher, hmm. um, and it was because of, I, I think is you know because of relationships I had with coaches. Coaches and teachers, but but I was I was closer in a lot of ways to coaches, and sometimes the teacher coach overlap would would be a particularly powerful thing for me, um, which is part of what resonated when I came to you know was looking at Gilman, right? Um, but uh, so relationships with teachers and coaches, um, I had gone to camp summer camp you know, my whole you know, for nine years in the mountains of North Carolina, um, and then I'd worked at one in New Hampshire at Camp Deerwood and, and when I was in college. Um, and uh, so I, I knew I liked working with, with kids. I, I volunteered youth basketball coach as a, um, when I was in college. Um, so I, I knew I liked working with kids in that kind of environment. And I liked um, the, the lifestyle that, that the teachers I was close to and the coaches I was close to seemed to, to have and, and represent. So it just all, it, it all appealed to me. Yeah, the the camp experience is interesting. I think I yeah. never I never really had that yeah. growing it's, up, but it's not a lot of people haven't had it. It seems like some teachers though they get into education because they had such a great experience at these sure. summer camps. Yeah, for sure. So I, um, um, yeah, I went to a camp in the mountains of North Carolina called Camp Camp Carolina, um, and it's it's been around since the twenties. And uh, a man named Nate Thompson. Um, was the director and, and Nath was a big influence on me and I, I've actually talked about him before too because he was one of those influences without you know like a lot of them you sort of don't realize it until later and, and the, the whole what a day which is another thing I say a fair amount mm -hmm. um, that came from Nath um, okay. that was uh, that was it was like the unofficial slogan of Camp Carolina it was what a day mm -hmm. which you know as a teenager I thought was corny and hokey and it you know we make fun of Nath for saying it but then um, you know, my boys were babies and I found myself saying what a day to them, um, right. you know, at night or in the morning. Um, so it was, you know, camp was, he also, he, Nate's two big things were what a day and firm handshake and look them in the eye. Mm -hmm. He would say that all the time. He would teach us how to shake hands and he'd say, give your boy, boys, give them a good firm handshake and look them in the eyes. What well, he's from Macon, Georgia. And, Went to Georgia. Was a huge Bulldogs fan. So I'm sure he's looking down at the <laughs> on Monday night with a lot of uh, excitement. Um, 
So yeah, camp was really important. And then I started working at, at the one at Deerwood in New Hampshire, which has a really neat long Gilman connection, um, which for me is all coincidental, but, but now pretty neat. Um, I started working there in college because one of my best friends from Andover's family owns and runs the camp. Hmm. Um, and, and so my friend Dan Thompson, his, his older brother Lorne is one of the directors now. Lorne taught at Gilman for a little while. And their grandfather, Ferris Thompson, um, who's known as Buck at camp, um, founded the camp in 1945 when he was teaching at Gilman and was the head lacrosse coach hmm. here. Hmm. Um, and so there's, a, there's this long Gilman-Deerwood um, connection that I was not part of as a kid from North Carolina. I was just, um, I was standing in the Thompson's kitchen in Lexington, Mass, unemployed one summer going in, or going into the summer. And they had you know space for another counselor so I, I started working there and um have stayed really close to that place since yeah i guess i kind of got into education similar i mean i was doing the cross camps and yep. cross lessons yep. and i enjoyed working with with kids yep. um and always loved my subject i guess english yep. same same i was a history major how'd, how'd you how'd you uh i guess find history as a as a did you have a teacher that that inspired you was it a specific subject that you got into yeah if i probably a couple of teachers um mr lyons was an andover teacher did you ever read the cartoon shoe the comic strip shoe was in the newspapers on a you know daily comic strip well that one of the characters in shoe was was in modeled after this man mr lyons tom lyons and he was a sort of legendary u.s history teacher um, at Andover. I really liked him. I ended up taking a constitutional law class with him as a senior elective the following year. I, I wrote my um, junior year U.S. history research paper on um, the the use of busing to integrate the schools in Charlotte, where I grew up, Charlotte-Mecklenburg um, County system. There was a big Supreme Court case um, called Swan versus Charlotte-Mecklenburg Board of Education that called for the use of busing to integrate the school. So it was taken Brown, which said, you know, you need that, that they can't be segregated anymore and, and turned it more active into like actively integrating the schools through a pretty complex busing system to move students all around the, the county um, to, to create measures of diversity within every school or as much as they could. So anyway, it's a big Supreme Court case that that then led to the busing in Boston, which was a much more publicized event. So all that stuff really resonated with me. And so I think that, you know, the, the civil rights era, um, I, I got, that was one of my first sort of hooks, I think, into, into history. Eyes on the Prize documentary came out when I was in high school. So we watched that as part of our, as part of our class. Um, and then, you know, from there, I just got you know, more interested in different in different topics within history, but American history was definitely the first hook for me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's what I that's what I majored in in college. I went into college thinking either history or English. Um, I realized pretty quickly that I enjoyed writing history papers, and I didn't like writing English papers as much, and so that tilted me towards history as a major. Was uh, John McPhee at Princeton teaching? He was. He, yeah, was he? he was. So a couple of friends of mine. Um, worked with him in creative writing. I didn't have any contact with him. I've read, you know, some of his stuff and um, neat, neat writer. In fact, um, we just gave Pittman, uh, or my mom just gave Pittman a copy of A Sense of Where You Are, which is the McPhee book on Bill Bradley when he was in college. Oh, right. Yep. Um, which my mom had read as excerpts in The New Yorker um, when it was coming out. And, and I remember she photocopied a lot of that and had my brother and me read them when I was a kid because we were basketball junkies, or mm-hmm. I certainly was um, growing up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't know John McPhee, but some of my some of my friends worked with him. So what was it like when you were leaving Andover and you were thinking about college? Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like, I guess, getting into Princeton and, and going there for, yeah. for school? Um, also loved it. It was a, a phenomenal experience for me. I, I'll admit I... I I went into, I sort of approached the college thing a little bit probably differently than a lot of kids at Andover did. Um, and I think a lot of that was because I was not from the Northeast and my dad went to Davidson. My mom went to Sweetbriar College, which is a you know, women's college in, in Virginia. Um, and so the 
at Andover, there was intense pressure, you know, to go to an Ivy League school or go to whatever school in the Northeast. And, um, and, and, and so there was intense pressure, and some of it was also just what people did, um, just because of that it was in the Northeast, and, the, and the, that was sort of the inclination of people. I mean, so 27 of my classmates, I think, went to Brown. Wow. Um, and I think another 18 went to Harvard and Yale each. You know, so there, it was kind of ridiculous that way. And um, so I, I sort of st- I sort of balked at that trend um, through a lot of my time at Andover. Um, and so, sorry, this is a long-winded way of getting to sort of how I got to Princeton. I actually applied to Princeton because it was, it was an Ivy League school. I hadn't seen it before I— I got in, um, so I applied, having not seen it before. But the other uh, the other schools in the Northeast that I looked at really didn't do a lot for me, hmm. um, and uh, and I looked at a few just because you know that's what what um, you know where a lot of people were going to be going, but didn't really do a lot for me. So I thought I'll, I'll apply to Princeton, and you know I've heard it's a good place, and <laughs> I've heard of it, and. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then I applied to more schools in the South, and uh, and I got in when I got into Princeton then I went and visited actually stayed with Lauren Thompson um the guy I was talking about who's running Deerwood now Mm -hmm. um and uh you know had had a good visit um it wasn't awesome I'll admit in fact I've joked with Lauren some you know some of the people that that um I stayed with you know some of his friends they were they were sort of in the grind of research papers and stuff so they weren't loving life as college students at that point they weren't really encouraging me to go there, but at the end of the day, it sort of it was it was too good an opportunity to pass up, and you know, I was fortunate enough that that you know my parents were able to send me where I wanted to go, and, and you know they they were leaving the decision up to me, um, but I think they were feeling the same way. Like, look, you just got in there, you should you should give it a shot at least. So mm-hmm. um, ultimately, that that was sort of the 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 thought process for me was that this is too good an opportunity to pass up. So I went and and loved it. It was yeah. great. Yeah. Um, and love, you know, it, interestingly, you know, th- so the adjustment itself was probably um, in a lot of ways not as hard for me because I'd already been away from home for three years and living in a dorm and I had roommates already and, and those kinds of things. And it was pretty interesting for me um, when I went to boarding school from North Carolina and and. So playing soccer and basketball were the sports that I played. So on we play on Wednesdays and Fridays, and we travel to other schools. You know, when we're playing away games, and you go to all these other often boarding schools in New England, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and invariably wherever we would go, the kids from Boston and Connecticut knew people at all the other schools. There was this whole sort of New England prep school circuit, and mm-hmm. I, you know, it didn't bother me anything, but I was very aware of it, that they all had friends and knew people at all these other places. I didn't. You know, Every now and then there might be somebody you know, from North Carolina or from camp or something who went to school, but that might have happened once You know, in my three Were years. there any people at uh, Andover with you from the South, or were yeah, you kind of on an island? Yeah, there were a few. Um, yeah. Interesting, there was a there was a – there was sort of a North Carolina run at the time up, up at Andover. Um, there were like 20 of us, you know, so, which is a, a big number, I think, out of, you know, out of 1,200 kids, though. It was a big school. Um, so not really. I mean, there, was a, there were a couple of guys that I'd gone to Country Day with, one of whom had left Country Day and ended up at Andover. Another, actually, both of them had left Country Day before I did and ended up there. Um, you know, there was there were two students from Country Day a year ahead of me, um, so I, you know, I, so yes, there were a few people that I knew, but we all didn't hang out together. Um, we were all friendly in some in some cases, friends, but or teammates, but we didn't all you know hang out together all the time. Um, so sorry, I, the um, but that that whole New England circuit. So yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of that for us, um, mm-hmm. or and certainly not for me. But when I went to college. I had gone to boarding school, and so I, I also very, I was very aware, very consciously part of this little boarding school network, and I had mixed feelings about that too. One, it was easy to make connections with people, and I think there were you know eight or nine of my Andover classmates in college with me too, and you know one, a couple were good friends, and and others you know we you know we'd see each other and you know could say hi and that sort of thing, but um, I was the adjustment to college for me was probably easier and to that college was probably easier in a lot of ways for me 
because I'd already been away in, in, in a New England boarding school. Now, uh, kind of going back to your, um, your, your speech on roots, yeah. and, and I found it interesting at the end of that speech, you were talking about how you were away from your, your home for yeah. a while. You went yeah. to boarding school, and then you go yeah. to Princeton. Were you homesick? Were you missing the, the South much, or did the breaks provide enough you know, home yeah, cooked meals point. and time at time with your family. Yeah, so I, I was. I don't. I, I don't think I can recall a time when you know, a specific moment when I was homesick. Maybe if I was a little under the weather. Um, mm-hmm. I know I can think of the one time in all of my years at summer camp when I was homesick, and it was because I was sick in the middle of the night and I wanted my mom. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I was never. I was never really homesick. The breaks helped for sure. Um, there were. And, and I missed home, right? And I missed the, you know, the, the saying, hey, that kind of thing. Um, but also loved where I was. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. We had David Gaines on not too long ago. Right. So we were talking about Princeton yeah. and, and Princeton lacrosse. These were the glory days of Princeton yeah. lacrosse. Yeah. So Gainer and I were classmates. Yeah. Same. same year, we were friends and in the same eating club. And oh, so you guys knew each oh, other. Yeah. 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 What what were the eating clubs like? What are what is that all about at Princeton? Yeah, it's it's hard to explain. Um, I mean, they're they're basically, I guess, the easiest way to explain is they're like co-ed fraternities um, uh, with some some fundamental differences. I guess you you at Princeton you don't join an eating club until the second half of your sophomore year, and you you eat there. The the reason they're called eating clubs is because it's one of the dining options for upperclassmen for junior and senior year um mm-hmm. and so it's where you eat your meals if you're in one you don't have to be you can eat on in the campus dining hall still um and it's also the reason i like them the fraternities because they're in these beautiful homes um houses and it's where a lot of the sort of social activity on princeton's campus happens um, yeah so. thinking about when i was in college i got a lot of crap in college from my my friends because i loved the dining hall and I was always in <laughs> it's there. A good place to be. Partly because I love food, yeah. but I I like the dining hall because I met so many different people. You know, just putting your tray away or sitting down somewhere and and talking to people yep. that you don't always get when you're you know in the library or in class or or doing a sport. Yep. It's just a little bit outside, and and a lot of my good friends now are people that I had a meal with one time my my freshman year of college. Yeah. Breaking bread is a good thing to do with people. And it, you, I totally agree. I mean, the dining hall is where a lot of activity happens. Um, it can also, I think, you know, in high school, I remember you know, some awkward moments in boarding school where you, know, you walk out with your tray and you start looking around, figuring out where you're going to sit, right, mm-hmm. and hoping that you know somebody or, um, mm-hmm. or there's an empty seat somewhere. And um, Yeah, you kind of have to get comfortable with do. going up to do. And, and that's say, hey, a good thing, right? right? That's, a, that's a good thing to uh, discomfort to work through. Yeah. Um, so coming out of Princeton, history major, mm-hmm. um, what was where was your mind at at that point in your life? Like, what were you thinking? Or were you thinking you wanted to go teach history somewhere? <laughs> I know you spent some time in Prague yeah, that I want to yeah, so, that I want to talk about a little bit. Yeah, so I, um, I, um, I I sent cover letters and resumes to a small number of independent schools around the country, um, and you know back then it was again more analog world. I I got a book in the library and. It's an independent school guide, and, mm-hmm. and you know, got their addresses and found out who the head of school was, and I would sort of blindly send them a resume and cover letter, and uh, at, at least politely, nobody was looking for what I, you know, looking for me. Um, so I, I, I come in the spring. I still didn't have a job lined up, um, but I knew I want. I knew that's what I wanted to be trying. So I, you know, I, I gave it maybe a decent effort, not a, a hard effort at least yet, and then a. A good friend from college who graduated two years ahead of me, um, actually one of the guys that I was hiking with this summer in the Dolomites, um, he and his cousin were moving over to Prague. Um, so this was 1992. Um, so the you know, communism was really just had just fallen. Was in you know and and the democratization and the the capitalization the um, the conversion to capitalism. I don't know what the right verb is there. Um, was just happening in Eastern and Central Europe. And so they were going over to start a business. And um, and Alec, my friend Alec, basically invited me to come along. And and, it, and at that point, um, I called my parents and said, I've got this idea. And um, they were game for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Yeah, I think travel after college is is an awesome thing. Uh, you know, if, if you can do I, that. Yeah, and I, you know, I had good fortune to be able to do it, um, and I and I was able to get a job too, which helped. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, mom and dad helped with the one way ticket over, um, and uh, I'd never been to Europe, right? So I, you know, I I hadn't traveled a lot as a kid. I'd, I'd until high school, I'd, in, until graduation from high school, I'd never been west of either New Orleans or Chattanooga. I'm not sure which is further west. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd never been to Europe, and so I, I you know, flew over there on a one-way ticket with my friend Alec, and um, ended up I, I got a few different sort of short-paying odd jobs until I landed a teaching job, and then I also helped them with their with their business, which you know, has since fallen a long time ago, fallen by the wayside. But it helped pay the bills, and it was in, you know, it was a, a really interesting learning experience, and. Um, we tried ultimately, there was a bunch of different ideas. One was to clean buildings, clean the, the facades of buildings over there, which were pretty dirty because of the way that coal was fired. Um, hmm. but ultimately we, we tried to export beer to the States, Czech beer. Um, <laughs> and, um, that, that also failed. Uh, but, uh, not without, not without a good effort. My uh, my dad went to Australia for I think a year year and a half after graduating oh, from cool. college, and he always says I, you know, I wish I stayed there longer because yeah. he, I think he got homesick over there. Yeah. But just the stories of traveling around and was he doing lacrosse stuff down there too? He or? was playing, I guess, semi professionally uh-huh. in Australia and yeah, coaching cool. and giving lessons and just. You know, I'm sure he worked a few odd odd jobs yeah, down yeah. under too, but he always says like I I regret you know coming back so right, soon because right. I I loved it so much down yeah, there. Yeah, and I loved it too. I mean, I, I, it's probably not an exaggeration. So I probably learned more in, in the one year I lived abroad than I did in the four years in college. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, it's funny, my, I did get it. I, so I taught English there to in a Czech public middle school. Um, so fifth, I taught fifth through eighth grade English at a, a little school called Zakladny Skola, which means basic school in a, in a neighborhood up behind and behind Prague Castle. And I would take, we lived in a different part of town. So I'd take, I'd walk to the Metro, take two metros and then a tram up to the stop that was like a block away from the school where I taught. Um, and, uh, and it was a blast. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, you know, doing that affirmed all of my inclinations about teaching that I'd had, you know, coming into college and coming out, going into college and coming out of college. Um, it was a ton of fun and I loved working with the kids and could you speak the language? Did you? No, I, not at the time. I, I went over not knowing a lick of Czech. Um, hmm. so was interested. this school, um, was, it was the, the equivalent, it was called a language school, it was the equivalent kind of of a magnet school in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, it focused on, for them, foreign language. And at the time, that meant German and English. It had been Russian, but they dropped Russian kind of as soon as they, as they shed communism. Um, and uh, so they were teaching German and English in this school. The school started in third grade, and, and third graders had their regular Czech curriculum and they took English or German in third grade and then they'd start the other one in fifth. So all of the kids that I had in my class had had at least a few years of English and in some cases several years of English and some of them could speak English pretty well. So I, you know, I was able to kind of default to, or to, because they could speak English, I didn't need to know as much Czech and I picked up a fair amount of Czech along the way so that by the time I left, I was pretty comfortable in public. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know, took Czech lessons and that kind of thing to try to get up to speed a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I have never lived extensively in another country for longer than a few weeks, but I feel like, you know, I've talked about this with some of the language teachers we've had on the podcast is, uh, you know, I tried hard in Spanish yeah. growing up and, and, uh, you know, I wanted to learn it. I just never really saw how it might fit into my life. And, yeah. you know, I went to Spain not too long ago and I'm sitting there, I'm like, I wish I, yeah wish I paid attention a little bit more, but there's nothing like actually being in the place to, to learn the language and the culture. Right. The immersion helps tremendously for sure. And I, you know, like I said, I got, I got my, my public check was, was decent by the time I left so that I could, I could navigate the grocery store. I could navigate the Metro. I remember one time answering our phone 
and understanding enough, it was a wrong number, right? <laughs> Somebody calling us and, and speaking in check on the on the other end of the line. And I, I was able to sort of understand what they were saying and say back that that person doesn't live here um, and and could tell that they understood what I was saying. I hung up like, all right, I, I, I got this a little <laughs> bit. Um, but it was, uh, it was, it was also nerve wracking. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I'd never been to Europe. The language, particularly Czech, is not. It, it doesn't sound like anything I'd heard before. So osmosis wasn't doing it for me. I couldn't just hear a word and go, oh, that sounds like pizza or, you know, it sounds like hello or whatever. Um, and uh, so it was like, I remember getting to Prague and, and you know, in this case, really being in a foreign land. And it took me a few days even to be comfortable leaving the apartment by myself. You know, like to step out and try to figure out where I was going and how I was going to navigate public transportation mm-hmm. um, without understanding what anybody was saying. Hmm. Um, now, but pe- it was good. It's a good confidence builder. People yeah. go to Prague and say, at least from you know my past conversations with people who have gone to Prague, they'd love it there. Yeah. Would you recommend going there? Would you want to go oh, back yeah, there? Yeah, I've, and I've only been back, a, I've been back a couple of times. You know, we have, I, the last time I was there was 10 years ago when um, Elizabeth and I went over so that I could see the school Porg where we have the exchange. Um, so it helped us set up the exchange that we now, we've had now for about 10 years with, um, actually, yeah, about 10 years with this school in Prague called Porg. Mm-hmm. I actually um, taught uh, those two guys. One, um, uh, oh, last year? Yes. Oh, yeah. They were in my class for like two, three weeks. Uh, uh, Franz or... Uh, fr- no, shoot. I'm forgetting too. Franco. Uh, yeah, Franco. 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 Yeah. Well, um, they were both in my class. Um, I'm drawing a blank on his the other guy's me name. Me too. Shoot. We'll have to edit this part out. <laughs> Franco, uh, he, you know, they were sitting there. It's the end of the year. Yeah. And, and they're sitting in the class and everyone else is working on the final assignment for the year. And Franco's like, what should we do? Oh, I think you told me this. I might have told you this. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, Franco, you guys are fine. Just ha- just hang out. You've got two more classes left. But when you go back to Prague, write me a poem yes. about the city you and send it to this. me. And at the beginning of the year, Franco, some random email comes through and is like, Mr. Scott, here's my poem about Prague. That's so great. What a testament to you, though, that they connected with you enough in a short period of time to, to do that. That's awesome. Um yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal city, and, and a neat coincidence, my next-door neighbor, this guy Andre Stiebner, who was our next-door neighbor in Prague in our apartment complex, um, his son goes to Porg now. Um, and we were emailing over the Christmas break, and uh, I'm, or the winter break, and I'm hoping that he will, uh, you know, that maybe his son will be able to come to, to Gilman as oh, part of the exchange. Awesome. How cool would that be? Yeah. I love the exchange program yeah, I do too. we do here. I do uh, too. And that's another example of us at our best when you know when the the exchange students are introduced in upper school assembly and the and the reception that they get. Yeah, I was um, really impressed so with the with the most recent guy from South Africa. Mm-hmm. I think when he stood up and just projected his voice. Yeah, to the, he he did well. That's not he easy to well, do yeah. at a new place. Yeah. Um, awesome. So. I guess when we're on the subject of travel, yeah. and I've heard you talk a little bit about your trip to Italy, but memorable trips that you've gone on in your life. I know, yeah. I know the the recent one to Italy was a great one. Um, yeah. So, um, maybe a couple different cat. We didn't travel a lot as a family. Um, we yeah. So we you know yeah we didn't. I went to camp in the summer, so we didn't do summer vacations really. Um, and you know, dad was working, whatever. Um, we did a couple of one neat family trip we did, um, in the, it must've been like 75. We drove down to, to Florida, to Cape Kennedy to see a rocket launch. Um, and, mm. and this is one that's hanging in the air and space museum. The, the capsule that, that the rocket was launching into space was one that was going up. It was manned by you know, American astronauts who were going to meet up with Soviet cosmonauts in space and the, and the two capsules were going to link. And it was a sort of detente like moment. Um, and that capsules now in the air and space museum. So we, we drove down to watch that take off. I think my dad was pretty into the whole space thing. And he and my brother had, um, flown down to Cape Kennedy to see, um, 
uh, Skylab launch uh, a year or two before that. Um, so that was that was kind of a cool trip. And then we did another neat um, 1976 bicentennial trip we we drove up to dc from charlotte and then we took the train all the way up to boston and we stopped in philly in oh, philadelphia cool. and saw some of my mom my mom's college friends who lived there and went saw the liberty bell and franklin's you know tomb and all that kind of stuff then we went to boston and got to see all the sort of patriotic stuff there so that was a pretty neat um bicentennial celebration trip that we did um but otherwise we didn't travel a lot as a family um, so traveling from Prague because it's in the middle of, of Europe, um, to uh, the two most noteworthy trips there is I spent um, a week in Kiev and Kiev we called it at the time. I guess it's called Kiev more now in, hmm. in Ukraine. Um, and so that would have been March of 1993. Um, and so communism had really just the Soviet Union had really just broken up, and and it was a pretty amazing trip. And um, as as sort of Eastern or Central Europe as Prague was at the time, going to Ukraine, it was that much less westernized. Um, And and in fact, we got there, we didn't really, we were just traveling. And so we we bought a one-way ticket to Kiev from Prague, thinking that we would stay there for a couple days and then go down to Odessa and visit the Black Sea and and the Crimea and then come back a different route like through the Carpathian Mountains and, and through Slovakia um, back into Prague. We got to Kiev after a 34-hour, I think, train ride where we stopped in Lvov at the border um, where they had to change the, actually had to change the gauge of the railroad wheels on the car because the Soviet system was a different gauge than mm. the Western European system. And so we took the train as far as we could through Slovakia and then we we just stopped for a while while they changed the wheels on our hmm. on our train to get us into the into Ukraine. Um, so we got to Kiev and we realized or Kiev and and we realized that um, it was going to be really hard to get tickets back out. And so we spent a good part of the week walking around the city trying to figure out how we were going to be able to get tickets out um, of the country. Hmm. And we ended up having. Um, um, First of all, it's hard even to figure out where to buy tickets. It was nothing was clear. It was just a sort of disorganized society, and in, in terms of infrastructure, right? It was not not very well organized, and certainly even more so if you didn't speak the language. Um, and so, at one point, like we were trying to figure out where the the ticket office for the train you know, train station was, and we ended up in a in a like a deli kind of bread bakery shop um, with these you know, these really friendly neat women behind the counter and they used they used an abacus instead of a cash register by the way it was wow. fascinating stuff I remember buying something and, and she did all this abacus wizardry and then showed it to me I had no idea what that stood for wow. like, can you please write down the you know the value but at, at some point you know we didn't I, I didn't I couldn't speak Russian and and um, so I found myself like going choo-choo, like this. And finally she goes, oh, choo-choo, choo-choo. And she sort of pointed down the street, which was not the right direction. But it was just sort of comical trying to figure out how to get out of the country. And we ended up um, going to the U.S. Embassy, and they connected us with a young Ukrainian who spoke English. And they gave him a letter from the embassy, basically giving him permission to buy us tickets on the black market. Oh my God! Yeah, um, I mean it was it was wild. It just so that was our whole week was just walking around Kiev, which was a phenomenal city, and we toured some stuff, and we, um, you know, we we met some really interesting people along the way. But but we didn't go anywhere other than that city. We didn't make it down to Odessa or anything else. We finally got tickets back out, and that was the end of our week. What was the um, motive for going to Kiev? Um, just to see it. Yeah, I had I had I met a couple of guys who were um, who were living over in Prague at the time, and it was their idea. And I would, I had some time off from from school from my my job, and I was thinking I was gonna go to Spain or something, you know, somewhere warm. And mm-hmm. um, and at the last minute, figured I'd tag along with these guys and go to go further east into Ukraine, and it was it was awesome. Um, so then another neat trip was Easter weekend in Croatia. So this would have been Easter of '93. Um, and we, uh, we drove from Prague to Croatia, um, 
and this was when the the war was going on and so I've, I've, there's a picture of me next to a UN car uh, fortunately we were away from the fighting but it was not a place where people were really traveling I, I didn't tell my parents I was there until we got back mm. um, we were totally safe but it was also really cheap because yeah. of that and so we you know we rented a, a like basically a villa on a little island just off the coast of the mainland called Kirk KRK and um it was like $50 a night and there were five of us staying in it. Um, wow. so it was just, it was super easy to do that way. Um, but we drove my, um, my, my friends who were living over there ended up having their old Jeep Cherokee shipped over to Germany. And then my friend Billy went up and, and drove it back down to Prague. So we had a Jeep Cherokee with us, which was <laughs> a big car and, yeah. and, and Europe. And the crazy part, and this is sort of a telling sort of sign of, of where the U.S. was at this point in, in time, um, we drove, <laughs> I'm sure I should record this, but it was, it was fascinating. We drove the car, it had Virginia tags, yeah. out a North Carolina driver's license and passport. I had a passport um, through Austria, Slovenia, and into Croatia, and it was never an issue. Hmm. Um, yeah, I was wondering. How yeah, we blew it. a tire in, in Austria. We got it got it fixed. Um, picked some friends up at a at a train station that we had you know, we connected through phone and letters. I think we and they were traveling through, and so we picked them up at a at a train station. They hopped in the car, and we kept going, and we ended up down in uh, in uh, in Croatia, and it all worked out fine. That's that pretty fascinating. It's pro- yeah, it's, it's unreal. Yeah. Uh, probably amazing destination going to Croatia yeah, at the it was, end. It's I mean, so beautiful. Yeah. Um, so beautiful. And I, you know, when you, and, and now, you know, as was Kiev, just an amazingly beautiful city and all, you know, all the, the onion dome architecture and, and really grand boulevards and, and buildings. And, um, you know, it's, it's sad to, to think what those places have, have been through and are going through right mm-hmm. still. Um, mm-hmm. So was uh, Croatia the most beautiful place you've ever been, do you think? or? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, in terms of architecture and, and whatnot, I, I don't know. Prague is pretty tough to beat yeah. in terms of architecture. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the legend, I don't, you know, I don't know if this, it's more urban myth or not, but it is that it, it was a city that was, that was too beautiful for Hitler to bomb, right? Because mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. virtually untouched in in the world wars. Um, and, and so it, it's pretty tough to beat architecturally. I, um, yeah. Wow. The most beautiful place I've been, that's, then you get into nature beauty. Um, right. Yeah. It's a tough question yeah, because I mean, the, the Dolomites find... were pretty spectacular glacier in Montana is unbelievable. Alaska is amazing. Um, and different places have different kinds of beauty. Um, Canyon backpacking is pretty spectacular too. Yeah, the first thing that pops into my mind is when I went to Machu Picchu with Gilman a couple oh, yeah. years ago as a chaperone. Yeah, that was just like my first year at Gilman, and they were looking for chaperones. No one wanted right. to do it. I was like, "Yeah, I'll go. Yeah. I'll go to Machu Picchu." And the vastness is the, is mm-hmm. what I think about, and just how you look out on to those mountains and the civilization built into the side of the cliff and you just think about how small you are and insignificant right. almost. Right. So, right. And I've never been down there. I've never been to South America. I'd love to. It's on my list, but haven't made it yet. This summer, do you have a, a, an idea yet? or uh, Maybe New Zealand. The International Boys Schools Coalition annual conference is, is in Auckland. Um, uh, no, might be in Christchurch. I can't remember. I have to go back and look. Um, but it's in New Zealand, so I, I might go down for that. Um but I'm not, I, I'm not entirely sure yet. I haven't, haven't figured that part out. Hmm. And we're, we're thinking about our next big group backpacking trip. There are a few things on the, on the list. I'd love to do a cross Scotland hike. And we've thought about the fjords up in Norway. Oh, wow. Um, and I, you know, I still also just, there's plenty of places in the U.S. to go. Um, and that, I have traveled pretty extensively in the U.S. Um, so a lot of hot spots to, um, 
return to or tr- still try to hit. Now, I know you love hiking. Was hiking something that you kind of grew up with, or is this something you've uh, you've adopted in your life uh, with your family? Yeah, going on hikes, big hikes. A, a little of both. Um, well, we didn't we didn't do a lot of hiking as a family. My dad liked to hike. He grew up in the mountains, and so that that part of it for me was a, um, I guess that I inherited um, or is, is in the DNA. Um, and then through camp, you know, did some hiking. I, I, I really discovered backpacking probably, you know, high school, college. And then, um, uh, for a while when I was a a younger teacher, I had a a little summer business taking kids backpacking and fishing, fly fishing out in Northern California, did that for a number of years. Um, and in my summers during college, so one one summer I worked in New Hampshire at camp, but other summers I, I worked out west. Because um, I, I discovered the west when I graduated from high school. I, I lived in Montana that summer between high school and college with a buddy from, from boarding school um, in a little cabin outside of West Yellowstone, Montana. And that's where I learned how to fly fish. It's where I, I discovered Montana and the west and all that. Yeah. Um, and I worked in a, in a fly shop in West Yellowstone. Um, wow. So my friend Scott, who's a, a professor at, at Berkeley now, um, had grown up doing a lot of fly fishing. And, and he had a job in a, at a different fly shop in West Yellowstone. And when we parted ways after graduation, I wasn't sure what I was doing that summer still. And I, I sort of jokingly said, hey, find me a job. I'll, I'll meet you out there. And, and literally, I was sitting on the couch at home. Um, and the phone rang. And Scott had found me a job. Hmm. So I got in the car, like I said earlier, I haven't never been west of like Chattanooga. And, um, uh, my brother had, had just graduated from college and had moved, was moving to New York. So I had his car and I drove it out to Montana. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and got a job in a fly shop. They just built a building. So I didn't know how to fish, um, fly fish anyway. I'd grown up in bass fishing on ponds. Um, but, uh, they had just built a log cabin, a new building, this company called store called Madison River Outfitters. And so they hired me to be there, basically to their, do all their grunt work. So I'd, I'd get there in the morning and, and hose down the building because there were dirt roads at the time. So they'd get real dusty. So I'd hose down their new building. I'd vacuum, um, deal with the garbage. And then I built their stock room over the course of the summer just with you know, metal shelving and then started to organize their stuff. And then over time I got... Um, I was able to do a little bit of stuff on the, you know, on the floor, <laughs> but, uh, it was good. It was That's good. pretty awesome. Yeah. It was good Montana is amazing. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, that was a good intro to fly fishing. So we were talking about books earlier before we started recording. Uh, that's where I, I read a river runs through it for the first time. So this was 1988 before it was a movie. Um, it had been my, one of my, my friend Scott's, one of his favorite books. And, uh, so I read it. You know, in Montana, on a basically on a trout stream, um, it was pretty. It was pretty special. Uh, pretty special read. I have not read that. Uh, have I you not? Yes. Yeah, so maybe that's that's the book recommendation right it there. It might be. It's way up there on on my list. Um, it's short, so you know it's it's a quick read. The other two stories in the book. It's the the book itself is called A River Runs Through It, and other stories. I think. Um, oh, is it a short story? It's a it's a relatively short story. It's okay. like probably eighty five pages. Um, and uh, Norman McLean, who was a, a you know tough Montana guy, is an absolutely beautiful writer. Um, and uh, yeah, it's I, I highly recommend. Elizabeth finally re- read it for the first time about a year ago, um, and 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 it got the reception that I you know I'd hoped it would. It's <laughs> it's, uh, it's a really neat story. And I know the movie's pretty good too. Yeah, I've the movie heard. is good. Yeah. yeah, the movie is good. They did a pretty good job. Robert Redford did a pretty good job. I think of of. You know, it doesn't stay totally true to the story, but I think it captures it captures it pretty well. Yeah. Well, Henry, I think we're getting to uh, to the end of our our hour here, All but right. um, I really appreciate you coming in to the podcast today. It's a lot of fun. Thanks, Jake. Um, yeah. One other question that that maybe we can just touch on a little bit is just I didn't want to talk too too much about Gilman School yeah. and. You know, because I, I know that some people who watch this have heard a lot of, of, of things about the school and know right. what the mission is of the school. Yeah. But one thing that I have been thinking a lot about in this class that I teach on leadership and character is uh, is kind of 
what what the role of the school is in in building character and i know you and i have talked a lot about yeah. david brooks and mm-hmm. what he's written and, and spoken about in terms of character of people but when you think about the character of gilman and, and the character that the character qualities that we're trying to instill in the yeah. boys here i guess what comes to your your mind first yeah you know well, I think Gilman Five comes to mind right away. Uh, um, first, um, you know, you referenced David. You talked about David Brooks. You know, I actually referenced him on Wednesday too. This idea of eulogy virtues versus resume virtues, and all I, I think all of those things speak to a deeper meaning, right? Um, we are, you know. And this is the, for me, in a lot of ways, this is the spirit part of mind, body, spirit. We are a part of something much larger than ourselves. I think we're answerable to, or yeah, answerable, accountable to something much larger than ourselves. Um, And so Gilman Five, you know, teacher, coach, all of those things, I think, are about connecting us to other things and and other you know, other inst- institutions within the institution, teams, classes, grade levels, mm-hmm. um, people, individual people, groups of people, um, you know, so that we feel this connection to something larger than ourselves. And, and think, so when you talk about honor, it's not just honor within yourself. That's really important, but it's how it, it, it has you behave when you are, you know, in a larger environment, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you're acting on your own, you, you're acting honorably because of what's around you, you know? Right. Um, right. And uh, being a first-class citizen is because you're you're mindful of what's around you. Mm-hmm. you know? So I think that's I think that's what Gilman, um, I think in some ways is, has tried to be about all along, um, as I understand our history and and what I hope you know will be about. You know, long after you and I've been, you know, put out to pasture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think I think that's why sports are so oh, emphasized yeah. here. Is Absolutely, I learned a lot of those accountability lessons just on the field. You know, someone on your team messes up, yeah, and then the whole team is punished. Yeah, and it's and it makes you learn really fast that you are responsible for everyone else. Yep. For, in addition I mean, to yourself. In addition to yourself and the individual self-discipline. I mean, I you know I we didn't really touch on this stuff earlier, but you know, I did well in school, but um, you know, also probably shouldn't say this too much, but th- there are plenty of subjects I really didn't care about that much. Um, mm-hmm. I cared about sports, you know, across the board, you know, and soccer and basketball were the two that I played. Um, but that I, I'm convinced that, that any measure of self-discipline I have came largely from playing sports and, and coaches holding us accountable and, calling me out individually when my defense was bad or, you know, um, that kind of thing. And, and that mattered to me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think there's so much to learn through, through playing, through playing sports and, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be ultra competitive interscholastic and the same thing, you know, being a part of a group and, and being accountable to your teammates, you know, can happen at all levels. Yeah. Um, that's uh it's really important stuff. Yeah, and you think about like theater productions oh, or, yeah. or Same thing. the band, yep. you know, if you forget your instrument or you show up yep. late, you yep. everyone else is a, is affected. In yeah. in a positive way too. Right. I mean, if you have right. a great night and you you crush it, everyone does yep. really well yep. too. And with music, a, a neat thing about that, you know, playing in a band um how you play matters. But you also really have to listen to everybody else in the band, right? If if the sound, if the band sound is going to be good, you know, one instrument can't. Oops, sorry, one instrument can't dominate the others, right? And so you really have to be listening to what's going on with the with everybody else playing or singing around you, um, in order for it to work as a you know as an ensemble. And that's that's also the the teamwork aspect there, and and the awareness of what's around you is so critical. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jake. Yeah. Great, right. great time. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it.